The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony Corona. Every week here on ACB Media One, that's American Council of the Blind, Media One, and soon after on all your major podcast catchers. Each week, we'll dive into the news, human interest, and discussions about the issues surrounding all of us in and out of the American Council of the Blind community. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I am so thrilled to be here with this program today, the beginning of a series of programs regarding allies of the civil rights movement. And I am so happy to have my team that I'm going to introduce briefly, and um, then I'm going to read something to you, and then we're actually going to begin with our wonderful guest star, Ira Grouper. Our team members are, and each one of you can say hi if you'd like to when I call your name, Cheryl Cummings. Good morning or good afternoon. (laughs) There you go. And do we have Tim too? We do. Good morning from beautiful downtown Seattle. Thank you. Good enough. And we have Kenneth Simeon, senior. Hello from Texas, everyone. There you go. And we have Pam Shaw. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm here. Um, There's a tornado watch, okay, and flash floods. So if I run away, you know what happened. Thanks, Debbie. Okay. (laughs) You're welcome. Okay. And Jeff Tom. Good day from California, where there's lots of heat, but no wind at all. Well, there you go. And of course, our friend who has spoken to us before, who's trying to enjoy his family, but is here to help out, Anthony Corona. Hey, hey. Um, Good and happy blessed Sunday to everyone. I'm really glad to be a panelist and not have to run the whole show. And Pam, if you drop off, we will send a rescue boat, we promise. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) There you go. An accessible one, please. (laughs) I thought it would be a good thing. Um, I One of these days, we're going to play this. But in the 1960s, when we were working so hard on the path of true equality and equity for everyone, there was a song, and it was recorded by Kim Weston. And because of some um, regulations, we can't play it for you. But what we're going to do is this. We're going to attach a YouTube link to her beautiful live performance. And we are also going to send you the lyrics. But I want to start us off by reading them because it encapsulates what happened back then and where people were. And although we don't live in the past, we don't stay in the past, we learn from it. And although we haven't reached the finish line yet, There were people back then who helped us on the journey. And one of my dearest friends 
and also an author says, everybody counts or nobody counts. Mm. And that is one of the phrases that I gauge my life by. I gauge it by Dr. King's remark that we judge people by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, and that if everyone doesn't count, we don't either. And so that's what I want us to bring. And I hope that, I'm sorry we can't hear Kim singing it. She's, oh, she's so gorgeous. But I want to begin by reading you these words. And I hope that in some way, you, it will capture in your minds and hearts where we were and where in attitude and commitment and a desire for achievement, we need to get to again. And we're so thankful for everyone who is there. And so I'm going to read these lyrics to you now. It's called Lift Every Voice and Sing. Lift every voice and sing to earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun. Let us march on till victory is won. Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat, have not our weary feet come to the place for which we our father sighed? We have come over a way that with tears has been tattered and watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. Out from the gloomy past till now we stand at last where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us thus far on the way, Thou who has by thy might led us into the light. Keep us forever in the path, we pray. Lest our feet stray from the places, our, our God, where we met thee. Lest our hearts, drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shadows beneath thy hand, may we forever stand. True to our God, true to our native land. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is with great pleasure that I introduce to you a longtime friend, a person who every day of his life lives the civil rights walk and the civil rights talk. And he I've asked him today to come and share with us the realities of the time that he spent in Mississippi and Georgia helping people who had every right to, to be able to cast a free and independent and secret ballot. And some of us know what that must have felt like because it was a long time before many of us were able to do that. 
And so Ira is full of stories and, and anecdotes and the loving people that were in his life and also the other people whom he had to combat with words and deeds. And so it is great, a great honor for me to introduce my friend to you, someone who is also visually impaired, someone who has walked the walk and talked the talk and still is my good friend, Ira Gruper. Hello, thank you, Debbie. I'm very honored to be on this call, very, very honored. And I hope I don't disappoint. Um, let me ask this first. Approximately how many people are on this call right now? Probably, well, the last time I saw it was getting close to 20. Okay, good. And, you know, so. Okay, I know I'm, that there, I'm, are, there are Caucasians and there are African-Americans. Are there any other nationalities? No Latinos? Okay. We're also um, going out over ACB media. So there are probably many um, Latinos, African-Americans, Indian, um, of Native American. So we can assume that we're hitting a very broad, broad audience. Okay, so let me say to the Latino friend, bienvenidos, compañeros, compañeras. It's very difficult for me to figure out how to begin and all, but I'll do the best I can. Why don't you um, begin and tell us what drew you into this movement? Why, why you, why you made the life choice you made? Okay, what well, took I have you to, give to you the a little, a little yeah. background for that, and then, a, then that will lead into that. That's uh, good. That. I, was, I was born and raised in New York City, in the borough of Brooklyn, New York. My family comes from Orthodox Jewish stock, what you, some of you would call holy rollers, not the holies of the rollers. <laughs> Although my father became politicized during the Great Depression of the 1930s, and he, uh, after the Holocaust, he, he couldn't abide. He, he did not go to, to religious prayers anymore. So six million of our people died. I was raised in a New York City housing project. One step above the... Uh, one step above the poorest areas, but it was not a wealthy area. They say all Jews have money, but I must have missed my damn house because we didn't have any money. And so I, I, I went to elementary school in, in, in New York. But let me back up and say that from birth, I had very little vision. And my mother, God bless her, she's no longer living. My mother would take me from one doctor to another to try to cure me. I love my mother very much. But she didn't accept me, at least in the beginning. She just wanted to cure me 
of this terrible disability that I that I had. So that was a, a force of contention. My father, on the other hand, was much more erudite and compassionate. My mother was not uncompassionate, but she just didn't know. She took me from this one doctor, then another doctor, then another ophthalmologist. So that's, that's part of the tale for me. I felt very, very inferior growing up because I have a little vision but I cannot read a blackboard from the, the, the first seat, the first aisle in a, in a classroom. And um, New York City was very good. They had a site, what they call a site conservation class. It didn't conserve site, but it, they would enlarge things for me to a point where I, I was able to read them. Even then, sometimes I had difficulty. Well, I went to uh, to the public school system in New York City. And as I mentioned, they had a special class for people who were, were visually disabled. Unfortunately, as, as good as the classes were, what I needed then, maybe even now, I needed somebody to give me encouragement to be a cheerleader, to say, you're just as good as everybody else. You're not a freak. And I I didn't have that. It was missing. Well, I finished high school and I started in college, but but let, let me back up a little bit. When I was in high school, I saw Helen Keller she was invited to give a speech in my high school. And I was moved beyond words because she did not concentrate on disability. She concentrated on other things. She was a, a radical political woman. She spoke four languages, totally blind and totally deaf, but four languages. I can't speak four languages. Maybe some of you can, but I can't. And that had an effect upon me. Well, skipping ahead now, I went to college in in New York City, got involved in the civil rights movement very, very early. Even before that, my father came home from work one day. I want to say it was around 1955. So I was then nine years old. And he said, Ira, there's going to be a a picket line. I hope everybody knows what a picket line is. If you don't, um, let me know. And by the way, you can interrupt me anytime with a question or a comment. And if you disagree with me about something, that will be fine too. You'll be wrong, but you can disagree with me. (laughs) Debbie told me to say that. So, he says, this was 1955. He says, I'm going on a picket line to support the demonstrations in the South, the civil rights demonstrations. And he asked me if I wanted to go with him. He's taking off from work and he didn't, the family didn't have much money. So for him to take over the airport, that was really something. 
but I, I didn't understand at that time. I really didn't. A little bit later, there was a, a sit-in at a F.W. Woolworth's lunch counter. F.W. Woolworth was a national chain. It may still be, I don't know. And uh, they refused to serve African-Americans. And so people were boycotting them. And my father took off from work to go to that. And I had a great influence. I, I, I'm almost 80 years old now. And I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. But I remember that act of solidarity that he, he had. Um, I was aware that the problem of racism was not just in the South. It was all over the United States, the whole United States. And um, it was not just a matter of race. It was a matter of class and of money. In Spanish, there's a saying, cuando tenía dinero, me llamaba tonto más. Y ahora que no mía, me llamaba tonto más. When I had money, I was called Sir Thomas. When I didn't have money, that disappeared. Well, so I'm in high school now and then, graduated high school. I began to start realizing that I wasn't, in fact, as good as other people. I just needed perhaps to learn things differently. I needed somebody to enlarge print for me because I couldn't read it. Well, I went to college in New York and got involved in the civil rights movement there, in fact. Well, before that, I was, I was, I was arrested once in New York City for, what well, was it for? So many arrests, <laughs> I can't remember. But it was for a protest. And my, my mother was so ashamed of me, and my father was so proud of me. That marriage didn't last. Well, in, when I was in college, I started to get involved more and more in, in demonstrations and learning. And it was the, the power, the, the bravery, merit of, of the African-American movement that played a big influence upon me. And I finally said to myself, Ira, you're as good as everybody else. Maybe that sounds corny and trite and platitudinous. I don't mean it to sound that way. But the civil rights movement helped me to figure out who I was as a disabled person. And I still remember that. And I said, I'm almost 80 years old now. Well, when I was in college, I was active in things, but and had gotten arrested once. But the main action was not in the North, it was in the South. It was not that racism was just in the South. Racism was and is just as bad in the North, only it manifests itself a little bit differently. We can go into that maybe later if you want. Well, my original intention was to get a, a bachelor's and a master's and a PhD in 17th century English literature, if you don't believe that. Well, this, this great massive civil rights movement 
came along and it changed my thinking. So I became more and more involved in, uh, in the civil rights movement in, in uh, New York, but was then contacted by somebody in uh, one of the civil rights groups called SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was like the, the Marines, the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement. They were not fancy people. They didn't wear ties and nice blouses. And it had a great influence upon my life then and now, actually. And so I, I did a lot of volunteer work for this organization. They had a New York City fundraising office. And, I, and then one of the people asked me, would you like to go south? And I said, oh, yes. And so the first place I went was Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. I was, I don't remember how old, maybe 21. And they, they used to say Atlanta is a city too busy to hate. It hated just like the rest of the South. And I worked in the, in the office of this one group called SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. I worked right beside a, a gentleman named John Lewis, if you don't know who John Lewis was, you need to look him up. John Lewis is no longer living, but he was, a, he was a congressman, but he was the leader of a lot of civil rights protests. And it was, it was a great, great man. In fact, I have a, a book in my house that he autographed for me that he wrote, and he became a congressman later on. So I was involved in, 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 in Atlanta, and in the office, office, the offices, I don't know what kind of term you use, it was a place people gathered to go out to go to demonstrations, not just in Atlanta, but all across the South. But the, the director of research was a, a man named Jack Minnis, and Jack was an economist, among other things, and he said, it's not just enough to walk around in a circle and pick it into, you have to know how these make their money. And so he says, you need to use the texts that they use. So he taught me how to use Standard and Poor's Guide to Corporations and Moody's Industrial Guides and Who's Who in American Business. And that's how we learned where to put your picket line and where to do this and do that. Well, I was involved in, in Atlanta for a long time. I was at a lecture at Atlanta University, which is a big African-American school, and, well, a series of schools in, in Atlanta. And the speaker was from my organization. His name was, he later changed it to Kwame Touré, but his name was Stokely Carmichael. And Stokely... Um, said something which was really outrageous during the question period. I, I raised my hand and I, I refuted him. And boy, was he pissed off. But soon thereafter, when the audience was, was closing down, a wonderful woman came up to me and she says, you pretty smart for a white boy. You come into Georgia with me. I mean, you come into Mississippi with me. And I look, who the hell is she? Tell me where I'm going. But sure enough, a couple of months later, 
I was, I was at, well, let me back up a little bit and say that during the march on Washington, well, there were many marches on Washington, there was a woman named Viola Liuso, a white woman from Detroit, and she was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan just after the march. And they gave me the job of reading a statement that somebody had written in SNCC to announce this to the the press. And so my job was to call the, the press. It was, I was very nervous. My hands were shaking. And, but I did, I got to speak to Agence France Press in Paris, gosh, many, many other newspapers um, to, to, to let them know that. But getting back to, to this thing of Stokely, um, the woman who came up to me after I was listening to Stokely speak and refuted him. She says, boy, you're pretty smart for a white boy. She, she was African-American. She says, you coming to Mississippi with me? And sure enough, a few months later, I traveled to Mississippi and I moved to Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is in the southern part of the state, going toward the Gulf of Mexico. Now, I should tell you a little bit about topography and also the, the, the logistics there. In the northern part of Mississippi, cotton was growing. And blacks were picking cotton for very, very little money, almost hardly enough to live on. In the southern part of the state, and, and so anyhow, they lived on what they call plantations. And the plantation unto itself was a form of control. Of course, they had their own countries, their own store, and their own police force, and what have you. In the south, in the southern part of the United States, of Mississippi, going toward the Gulf of Mexico, the story was a little bit different. Many African-Americans were farmers, and they had little plots of land. They were not wealthy. One of the farmers' name was Vernon Damer. He was a, a relatively wealthy person, being an African-American at the time. And he was the head of the NAACP, one of the civil rights movements then, uh, civil rights organizations then and now. And he went on the radio, and he, would, he said, anybody wants to, to, to vote, I will pay your poll tax. A poll tax was a tax that they charged you to vote. And that's why voting is so important. Today, we take for granted what, what struggle went on to, to vote, how many people were murdered trying to vote. Anyhow, Mr. Damer called me and another person, a minister to his house, and he said, I want to show you something. And he pulls out this big sign. And on the sign was a picture of a hooded Klansman. And the, the legend underneath it said, I want you in the white knights of the Mississippi Klux Klan. They didn't want him. It was just meaning that they were going to kill you for, 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 for protesting. And he gave me the sign. I kept it for many years. I then donated it, I think, a 
forget where, University of Southern Mississippi, because it was beginning to deteriorate, but I have a copy of it. Six months later, Mr. Damon was dead. The Ku Klux Klan had hurled a Molotov cocktail, gasoline-soaked rags stuck in a Purex bottle with something phosphorescent or something to ignite it. Mr. Davo grabbed his piece, his, his rifle, and got him out of there. His wife escaped unharmed. His daughter was burned pretty bad, but she escaped. Mr. Damer was burned over about 80% of his body. And he died so in inhalation. A couple of days later, I couldn't believe it. And the FBI, I don't know what you think of the FBI, you may disagree with me. They did nothing to try to track these murderers down, and they knew who they were. All they wanted to know was, who gave me the information? And I had it, it was given the information of who it was, was given to me by a janitor who worked for the state, but I wasn't about to tell them that. So this had a great impact upon my life, and I was in Mississippi a long time. Now I'm going to change the subject, still be in Mississippi, but I want to tell you about two of my arrests. First arrest was up in Jackson, Mississippi. We were protesting the illegal convening for the Mississippi State Legislature, illegal because of the disfranchisement of African-Americans. Well, we would take, so many of us, 900, 150 of us, take it. the women were separated and put into a different prison nearby. And I didn't see my sisters in this struggle until we got out a couple of weeks later. I don't remember how long it was. When we arrived in this, uh, there were so many people they couldn't put us in the jail. So they, they cleared out a large part of the state fairgrounds where cattle had been kept. They swept up all the crap and, and all. And they they gave us very skimpy mattresses, no no sheets, no pillowcase, nothing. They stank. And I was there about two weeks or so in, in the jail. Well, we had to go from one compound building, one big building, to another after we were booked, color of your hair and eyes. And it's hard for me to talk about this. In order to get us to move faster, the police started to jab us with their nightsticks. A nightstick is a long stick with a weighted piece of lead in it. And whereas a, a billy club is a, a shorthanded stick. So they started to poke us. And the next thing I know, I was in another room huge part of this fairgrounds. So what must have happened was I was probably beaten unconscious and the other prisoners either carried me or dragged me to that area. When it came time to eat as a form of control and humiliation, the police and the guards forced the white people to line up first. So each of us got our, our meal, meal, two stale pieces of bread, with a stale piece of meat, or I don't remember what the hell it was, and, and there were no condiments, and a, and a cup of tepid water, warm water. And so each white guy got his meal, walked back, 
to his spot on this on the cement floor of, the, of, the, of this place, this compound, and sat down, but the we crossed our legs and sat on the floor, took this the sandwich, put it on and a cup on top of the sandwich, or maybe the other way around, and we folded our arms. And you have to understand, this was a very, very tense situation. These people have been beaten and all. After the whites got served, the African-Americans got served, and they got their sandwich in tepid water and went back to their spots and sat down. No one ate. No one drank. No one talked. But after the last black prisoner sat down, all of us prisoners, black and white together, picked up our sandwiches and broke bread as one. And I've never forgotten that. I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. But I, but I remember this. Sorry for crying. That's what the civil rights movement meant to me. Well, I was not just in, in Hattiesburg. I was in another city about 40 miles away, also in the southern part of the state, called Columbia, Mississippi, much smaller and I was involved there for maybe a year or so. And I, I remember once being put in jail there. And the police chief came in. And he, he leaned over. He went to where I was sitting on this bed, his cot. He leaned over. He said, you'd like to grab my gun, wouldn't you? And he leans over. You know, when you lean over, the, the gun holster moves toward, toward my face. And I, I wasn't going to go try to grab his gun. But meanwhile, there was his deputy was sitting right, standing right by the door of the cell. And they wanted me to grab the gun so they could shoot me, but they didn't. And I was, I was in that prison, that jail for about two, or two weeks or more and, and got out. And I, I spent oh, a year, year and a half in Columbia, Mississippi. And just so many things to tell. There was a, a, an amazing, amazing people. I, I got to, to love the black community there. Not everyone. Was an, there was an amazing woman named Mary Spencer. Mary Spencer was from rural Georgia originally before she moved to Mississippi. And she had a, maybe a third grade education. And she would work 10 hours in a white person's kitchen they didn't allow her to, to sit. She had to stand the whole 10 hours that she worked there. Then she would go home and she cooked for her husband, Lonzo, and, and her son, Robert, and they had taken in a little girl too, them too. And her contribution, among others, was to, to feed the civil rights workers, which she did. And I remember one situation where myself and Curtis, who was the director of the Project African American, and the third person, we went to her house. And here she had worked 10 or 11 hours. It's a white woman's kitchen. And she cooked for us. And she stood. She would not sit down because that's, she wasn't allowed to sit when she worked in the white woman's kitchen. So finally, Curtis and I stood up. Curtis was the director of the project, a wonderful man. I'll tell you about him in a minute. And Kurt said very politely that Miss Mary... If you're going to stand while you eat, we're going to stand while we eat. She didn't know what to do. And she sat down 
and she ate and we ate and there were tears in, in all of our eyes. But this is what racism does to you. It destroys you. It's not just a matter of beating you in this. It's a matter of what it does to you as a human being. Well, I was in Colombia. It's a year, year and a half. I forget days. But it involved many, many demonstrations. Oh, I should say that when I was beaten by the Mississippi State Highway Patrol when I was in jail in Jackson, there was a wonderful group called the Medical Committee for Human Rights. And they flew me. I don't remember. Maybe it was Cleveland or Ohio, someplace where I was examined by a specialist. And they said that I, I just had bruises and contusions, and, and, but there was nothing broken. I just had a heel. So I went back to New York City to see my family and then went back. I went to Washington, D.C., where the MFDP, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, had an office. And I learned a whole bunch of things about how, to, how legislators work or don't work. Being back to my home in New York, I don't remember the exact year now, 66, 67, maybe. Had various jobs in New York. And then I was contacted. Well, I did a lot of volunteer work for different organizations. I was a salesman. I worked on commission at that time. And one of the jobs... I was working. I I I I met a, a wonderful couple, Carl and Ann Braden, a white couple who were very supportive of the civil rights movement. In fact, many stories. I would commend to you a, a, a most wonderful book. It's been reprinted recently, called "The Wall Between." The Wall Between by Ann Braden, A N N E Braden, B like a boy, R A D E N. There's a story of a white she white woman from Louisville, but grew up in, in Alabama. And she was a, a great leader, she and her husband, Carl. And they were indicted by the government for sedition, trying to overthrow the government by force and violence. These were nonviolent people. And they hired me to work for them in, in Louisville, Kentucky. And I've been there ever since. I, for that part, uh, so many things to tell you. I. Ira, could you tell us a little bit about if you worked with people in trying to, what they had to do besides pay the poll tax to be able to vote and what you all did to um, make that possible for them to do that? That's a good question. Well, I was not involved with fundraising, but there are people fundraised, but just the act of registering to vote. See, we we assume that that's just an ordinary thing to do. If you did that, you could lose your home. You could lose your job and you could lose your life. Uh, I don't know how else to, to explain it, but but that's that was the danger. And so people who don't vote don't understand what it took to get the right to vote. Now, who you vote for, that's another question. And I'm not very pleased with any of the candidates right now, quite frankly. And I'm not a geschichte, another tale as we say in the Yiddish language. One of the songs that we sang, and forgive me, Debbie, I don't know how better to answer that right now. I'll think about it more. Okay. We would sing is, which side are you on? Come all you freedom lovers, good news I have to tell of how those freedom riders came to Mississippi to dwell. In any event, so I eventually 
returned to New York and then came to Louisville. And in, uh, in 19, I'm forgetting years, 75 maybe it was, I applied to get a job at the large, we had large cigarette factories in Louisville at that time. Philip Morrison, that's what's going to undo me. It's destroying my health. I never smoked a day in my life, but I breathed the tobacco dust. It's going to do me in. Well, I decided that I wanted to go get a regular job. I applied, work at a number of factories, and this one factory at Philip Morris. They said, okay, my, my references are checked out. These were phony references because I was a printer. I printed up my own references. I had a account <laughs> for all the times I've been in jail and elsewhere. So for the first time, I used to get jobs by having somebody similar height and weight to me take, take the physical. And it was a great danger because I, I got hurt a number of times. But I needed to work. I needed to live. Finally, I, I met a guidance counselor, a very wonderful woman. She's blind. She's still active at the ACB. And her father, also blind, he said, go ahead and make application. So I made an application to hire Philip Morris. And the uh, references all checked out because they called me. It was on a Friday. They said, okay, on Monday, we want you to come down for a physical. Well, I took the physical. First time in my life that I didn't have somebody take a physical for me and fake it. And I failed the physical, of course. So I, I call him up, the company. I said, can you tell me why I didn't pass this exam? And they put me on hold and come back on. The nurse said, oh, I just checked with the doctor. And they told me that you, we can't hire anybody with a vision that bad. I said, thank you. I hung up, except I wasn't on the phone by myself. I had a, a representative from the American Council of the Blind and uh, an attorney on the phone. And so I filed a complaint under the, under the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which was the predecessor to the ADA, the American with Disabilities Act. It took me a year and a half and I beat him. Oh, it took just so many things, so many. The, uh, I used to call him the senator from tobacco, one of the Kentucky state senators. Um, what we had written to him and he, he didn't do it, one of his, his, uh, his secretaries. They contacted and Philip Morris didn't respond in a timely fashion and he got pissed off. So I filed my complaint and, and they called me one day and they said, okay, we will hire you on a probationary basis, which is what I wanted. But they gave me no accommodation, no reasonable accommodation, which is the term that's operable today and should have been operable at that time. Now, my reasonable accommodation was I've been doing a job on the assembly line and I get hit in the head with a, with a piece of metal that was riding on, you know, on an overhead conveyor belt. And so I knew that I'm not to stand there. Perhaps they had these time study experts taking notes to everything I did instead of just, well, finally... Remember the first few days that I was there, a woman, actually an African-American woman, a very lovely person, she came up to me, she said, Ira, was I was on, on the day shift because they wanted to watch me. I didn't have the seniority to stay on the day shift. But he said, when the shift gets off today at three o'clock, 
we want you to come up to a particular floor and a particular section. And we're going to teach you how to do with your hands what you can't see with your eyes. And I was just crying. They were just so wonderful to me. And I, I lasted there for had like 23, 24 years, worked there and became very active in the union. In, 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 the, uh, in the beginning, the union was very nice to me. They, 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 they did cooperate. But when they realized I was a real badass, that I didn't like corruption in the unions or anything else, not all unions are corrupt, but this, my union was, they sort of sided with the company against me. So I was in a situation of fighting for the company, fighting the company, having difficulties with my union, going home to raise a family and do this job where I was getting hurt. Well, I lasted there for, well, I guess, 25 years or so. While I was doing that job, I got a call from the, the city of Louisville, the Human Relations Commission. Would you like to serve on this commission? And there's no money, I'll just prestige. Most people who serve on those commissions, they're not that altruistic. They work for some big company, they work for themselves, and they just want that as another mark on their escutcheon. And I did it, and I, I, show, I had to show up, and it was on stage. I could, didn't, couldn't go home and, and wash and change my clothes. I had a filthy uniform on, and I walked into the the office where this was being held. And here were these people, the women with their fancy blouses and men with their Armani suits. And here I was with this, I stank, but I couldn't help it. But I wanted to show them that I, I know as much as they did, maybe more. And so I, I used every polysyllabic sesquipedalian word, whatever that means, and put the proper syntax and morphology. And soon, I was made the chair of the commission that ruled of the panel that ruled on discrimination cases and eventually vice chair of the commission problem. And I raised all kinds of hell in there too, because they were not doing their jobs. So I served, I guess, two or three terms and I got, they made me a Kentucky colonel. I've been involved for so many years in, in this, the, the movement for justice. And I was just an ordinary person and I'm just an ordinary person who had to educate himself about what the real world was. And, and I, I, I said then, and I said now, I told Derwood McDaniel, who was then with the head of the ACB, American Council of the Blind, that I'll do anything to help people. And they gave me several awards for that. So now we're back to today. I'm, I'm divorced. I retired. I had a couple of jobs. In. I was on the Human Relations Commission for a while. And uh, that's uh, basically my story. I'll be 80 years old in January. Don't smack me for my birthday. Ira, given yes. where we are, given where we are today, and we're going to allow the panelists and others to ask you some questions, but given what you know, what you did, what can we bring from that to help us to today? How can we? How can we really build that wonderful table where we can go and break bread, that spiritual bread and physical bread where we can talk and talk things out? How can we, how can we heal 
kill hate with love. What, what, what do you, what advice would you give people today who are in the thick of this and want to be the kind of civil rights leader that you represent and others as well? What, what advice would you give them? What would you advise people? How can we take care of some of the damage that hate has caused? And what can we do? As though as the, we, you know, there's some people you can't do anything with because they don't give a rat's thing. But those of us who do, people who do, people who want to do the right thing of all races, what, what advice would you give us? I can't give you a blueprint. I'm sorry, I wish I could. But what I will say is, if you let somebody hit you upside your head, you deserve to get hit upside your head. If, if you see an injustice, somebody once said an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Our, our job is people with disabilities or our, our task should be to help people build a cohesive, unified movement to be smart enough to differentiate. Um, you know, I, I can't give you a blueprint. Well, you gave us some excellent advice and we appreciate that. Ira, I'm going to turn the moderator chair over to a wonderful friend of ours, Jeff Tom, who is a member of the ACB board, a retired attorney. And he is going to, um, he's going to, uh, we're going to ask the panelists if they would like to raise their hands and ask questions first. And then when that is finished, we'll, we'll, uh, take questions in the audience. So, Jeff, are you unmuted and you want to take over the moderator chair? Thank you, Debbie, uh, for allowing me to participate in this. Ira, you're a incredible, incredibly tough act to even <sighs> partially follow. I want to ask one question before we sort of turn it over to a disability rights lend. Um, how pessimistic or optimistic are you, with respect to the exponential rise of white supremacy, of all the militia-type groups, of the effort to basically, you know, overturn the election, uh, all, all of the things that have happened over the last, say, five years and may well continue um, to happen? How, what is your perspective from sort of a long-term lens and someone who's been at this battle for decades about what we're facing now as a country? It's a very good question, and I, I can't give you a complete answer. I can just give you a running commentary from what I have seen. What I see is this country is going to hell in a handbasket. It's not just the Republicans. It's a lot of Democrats, too, make too many deals. There has to be built, sir, a, a cohesive, unified progressive militant movement that is not afraid to take the ram's horn up to the walls of Jericho if need be. And the situation is getting worse from what I see. I'm very afraid of what's going to happen. I, maybe I shouldn't be political, but I'm going to be. I voted for Biden, but I don't, because I didn't want Trump. But I see Biden getting us into all kinds of wars that we don't belong in. And I don't know what to say. There's a, an African-American guy named Cornell West. He's a teacher. I think he may be running. Well, I may vote for him as a, as a protest. But I'm sorry, I can't, I can't be more 
specific. I can't read the future. I just know that you must take, well, let me put it another way, in the Merchant of Venice. If you could be more specific and give a better answer, then we'd probably have to bottle it and make you president or something <laughs> like that. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a couple of raised hands in the panel. First is Anthony. Hi, Ira. Thank you so Hi. much. What a, what a great conversation so far. Um, I feel like you you invited us into your experiences. I'm, I'm someone who believes in peppering hope through any sort of conversation that that has advocacy um, implications for it. So could you possibly, and I hope you can answer this question, could you possibly tell us a time where you saw the change from the other side, be it a single person or an organization, you know, where the light came in and, and the understanding started to happen? Um, and, you know, if, if you do have an example, you know, what should we be waiting for now what, when we're not waiting for, but what should we be looking for as signs? Wow. I'm not sure I can answer what, what we should be looking for as signs, but I will tell you a story about a very good friend of mine. His name is Bob Zellner, C, like in zebra, E-L-L-N-E-R, white guy from rural Alabama. His father was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. His grandfather was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Bob was the first white person to join SNCC at this uh, civil rights group that I, that I was in. And I still see he still lives in Alabama. I, I, I just don't know how to answer that. I, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a fortune teller to see the future. What I will say is that my motto is, if you let somebody hit you upside your head, you deserve to get hit upside your head. Sorry if that sounds cruel, but that's that's the way I I perceive it, my friend. So, what is your elevator pitch to to our members who kind of stay on the side? They pay attention, they comment, but they're not really advocating. What's your elevator pitch to you know? I just participated in a panel called First They Came For because I believe that, you know, I'm, I'm from the LGBTQ plus um, community. And I believe that, you know, as they knock down groups, they're going to find another group to come for. So what's your elevator pitch to folks to get more involved? Okay, well, thank you for the question. Uh, I want to say something about the LGBTQ community. I had a lot of things to overcome. and And when I was... I forget what I was doing, but I was invited by the LGP community to give a talk. And they have a big community center where they serve these breakfasts. And I was a frick go to because I didn't want anybody to think I was gay. I tell you this because even amongst all of us, or I'll speak for myself, all the progressive things I've done, I had and have a lot of prejudices still. So I have to be able to figure out the, the best way to proceed. But I cannot give you a roadmap. I wish I could give you a roadmap. I, I, I just know that things are not getting any better. It, it's, it's just terrible. I'm sorry. I, I just, uh, I wish I was. No, smart. thank you. That's your, that's your perspective and experience. Thank you very much for that. Hey, hello, Ara, and thank you so much for joining us today to share your story. And uh, several things I, I wish I could bring up. 
but just a few things I wanted to ask about your experience, uh, like participating in the march for the first time. You determined that there was something that would help to bring positive change. Uh, part one of my question would be, uh, can you think of one instance where you really were happy that you uh, participated in a march even uh, as you advocated in that fashion uh, and saw some uh, positive results? And the second part is when you ex you stated that you had been arrested previously, I wondered if that time gave you uh, some uh, special time to think and make some future decisions about how you would proceed with your advocacy work. And uh, do you remember any enlightening moments of after uh, being arrested that you can pass on to us about moving forward after even trying to do the right thing and not even being uh, others not valuing our efforts? Very good question. I hope I can, I don't disappoint you with the answer. I'll try my best. Um, I, I just, I started to say earlier, I don't remember what I finished, what Shakespeare said in The Merchant of Venice, he said, there is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune, omitted all the voyage of their lives, is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves, or lose our ventures. When we see a current that serves, we've got to take it. We can't just be afraid, but you can't take it by yourself. You have to build a cohesive, unified, progressive, militant movement to achieve this. It doesn't happen automatically. I wish I could be more specific, sir, in, in answering your question. But if you see something wrong, say something. Don't let anybody get away. But don't just, you have to align your forces. If you have a group of people or, or a congressman or whomever, and they're usually much more powerful than you are, you have to build a movement you don't just have to feel sorry for yourself. I don't mean you personally, I'm talking about in general. Thank you very much. I, I can't give you more than that, but that's what I would say. Thank you so much for sharing your life story with us. I, I've, you know, I've been completely inspired by listening to you. I want to ask you, as a visually impaired person, how were you received by the folks in the civil rights movement? To some extent, how did you do it? So you talked about being in the office. Did they enlarge text for you or did you figure that out for yourself? I'll go back to high school and say they were very good about enlarging texts for me. What they were not very good about was counseling me that I'm as good as anybody else, that, that I was accepted by my sisters and brothers in the movement totally. Okay. And people helped me when I couldn't see something, they would read it to me. We used to call ourselves a band of brothers and sisters in a circle of trust. And that's what we, we were. And, and they would do anything to help me. It took me a little longer to do certain things. What I have, what we all have is, it's a disability. It's not an inconvenience only. It's a disability, but it doesn't mean that we're inferior. And I would say more than any other group I've ever had contact with, the progressive movement, black rights, Latino rights, et cetera, 
have been the most loving, caring people. Not everybody, because we have racism and sexism and homophobia and whatnot within all of us, within me, within you all. We have to fight it amongst ourselves as, as well as, as the society in general. I would say that I mean, your question is, is, is very good. I can't give you more. A number of you pe- people have asked me good, very good questions. And I, I don't mean to sound stupid, but I, I can't give you the, all the answers. We have to work it through by ourselves. Thank, thank you. Actually, you don't, you don't sound stupid. And I appreciate you talking about the fact that you were accepted by the uh, people in the movement and that they didn't hesitate. It sounds like if you, as you said, if you needed to have information read to you, um, that information was read to you. Because I think today, when you think as a person who's blind or low vision about getting involved in different activities, different protest movements, that's always something that I've been concerned about, you know, like how, how, will you be received? And I know from some participation that there are efforts being made to make sure that if somebody is blind or have any other type of disability and they want to get involved in social justice movements, that those movements are working to be more and more accessible. So thank you very much, Ira. I, I agree with you. I would also say that I don't understand, maybe some of you are, are smarter than me, maybe you all are smarter than me. Why is there an ACB and a, and, a, and a National Federation of the Blind? Why is there not just one organization? I don't understand it, but that's another, another story. Hi, Ira. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you, Pam. Very good. Ira, I'm going to get a little um, upfront and personal with you. Good. Because first of all, I do want to say, um, I don't think you were the only person on the line who shed a tear or who at least teared up as we heard your story. And um, second, for me, you brought the civil rights movement alive. And so I desperately appreciate that. I know because of what you said today and just natural things, there were some tough times for you and hard days. And I'm sure that maybe you wondered why, you know, is this really for me? Ira, what would you say kept you going then and, frankly, is keeping you going now relative to the civil rights movement? Thank you. It's a very good question. When I first got involved in fighting for myself, I learned that it's not an aberration or a misordering of priorities. It's systemic. And I, I, I look at that through my perspective that way. I don't know how much more I can elaborate on it, except to say, well, there's a a line in one of the civil rights songs. They say that freedom is a constant struggle. We struggle so hard. We must be free. We must be free. But it only happens when you struggle for it. It doesn't happen when you just talk about doing something. You have to really do it. We are facing some of the hardest times, just awful. I voted for for Biden because I didn't want Trump. But now I have my second thoughts about Biden. I mean, the shit that he's doing now is not what I appreciate. He's become a warmonger too. And we've gotten in, involved with just too many different things. All I can tell you, my friend. No, I thank you. That was plenty. Thank you ever so much and for being willing to share that that real personal side of yourself. So thanks a lot.
Okay, so I am going to turn the topic a little bit, and I'm throwing this out to the whole panel, and certainly to you, Ira, who has really been through both elements of what I'm about to uh, ask. What kind of similarities and differences do any of you think there are between the civil rights movement of the 60s with respect to communities of color and specifically uh, our own civil rights movement as blind people? Who would like to comment on that? I I think that we often get complacent um, as human beings, period, point blank, as society, etc. And I think we got complacent. And we thought that because a lot of things were not tolerated in the public spaces, that there weren't as much of those feelings and sentiments and, and things happening. Somebody famous, I think it was Rachel Maddow, said, you know, the permission to come out from under the rock was not only given, it was shouted out, you know, in the 2016 inaugural process. As Iris said earlier, you know, we all as humans have prejudices inside ourselves that we have to work on on a daily basis or, you know, or accept and understand and recognize. And so I think, you know, also having the LGBTQ perspective, I think we've shown the world, we've shown our country, we've shown ourselves what we're capable of. And that whole phrase of, you know, it's an experiment in democracy. It's also an experiment in human goodness and human kindness and human acceptance that, you know, we're striving to achieve. So I think that there are so many similarities. And when we break down what worked, what didn't work, how people, um, especially the messaging, how people received the messaging, how the messaging was from both sides from, you know, the opposite side, the the ones that want to oppress, what messaging worked? Why did it work? Where did it come from? And what messaging are we looking at now? Rachel Maddow, I I hate to bring her up again. No, I'd love to bring her up again, actually, is doing a a side podcast called Deja News, taking pieces of history and, and comparing the similarities to today. I think if we look at the messaging and understand the origin, how and why it works from both sides, we can really do a lot with that, especially in our community. I think we're too insular to our own community and we've got to start or restart coalition building. And on that, I will mute again. Yeah, I I read a book principally on race and I wish I could remember the uh, author's name. And she was an African-American woman. Actually, she was a mixed race, but she identified herself uh, as African-American. She was also in the LBTQ plus community. And one of her principal lessons is there is no excuse for any of us in whatever communities we are in to ignore and, you know, basically put down those in other communities and not to get behind those communities. And we see that all the time. You know, we, we can come up with countless instances where it's one community pitted against another um and we of course and we fall the same for issue. It. well that's right yeah. I mean, the same issue within our own community at times so you know it, it's uh it, it and it all it does is ultimately make us easier to divide and conquer and that's certainly 
uh, as you've identified, an important issue. Anyone else on, on this sort of sort of very broad question about similarities and differences uh, in, in the two movements? This is Kenneth. I, I, I may not be able to recall everything you stated, Jeff, but I do uh, think that it's so important. I, I thought of some things even while Ira was speaking about today where we are. And it, it it does appear that there's we're focusing more on the differences more uh, than our similarities. And a number of times we've said it, all of us have heard it and said it, that today we really need to have more conversation, just listening to our story. If we were to listen to one another's stories and experiences that are undeniable, these are real things. Nobody can, we have our different opinions and perspectives, but you can't take away my story, my experience that I actually lived and uh, will uh, is still living in some ways today. But if we could all understand that, that we all have those opportunities to have certain experiences, some are positive, some are not so positive, but that we just need to be able to better, better understand one another and value one another more. But the biggest thing is that with all our, our of our biases that have been developed through the years, we have to really work, be intentional about working through those things and not allow them to keep us away from working together to achieve a greater goal for all. And uh, just to think about how uh, we begin to care for one another. Uh, if we really hear somebody else's story, you you really can identify something in their story that you may say, wow, that is so much like what I went through in another area. And let's talk more about that. But listening intently is so important too. I don't know what the answer is, like Ara has said several times, but I think we just need to keep, I'm going to use one of Jesse Jackson's phrases from years back that I did appreciate, probably because I didn't understand way back then, but he would say, keep hope alive. We have to keep hoping that things are going to get better, and it may not be better 100%, but any growth in percentage from where we are today and where we have been can help us to move forward, but we actually have to come together and start somewhere, and that's why I believe this panel and this type of meeting is so meaningful. Anyone else want to comment? Um, a couple of things as I, as I think about the question, and they go in somewhat um, of a different direction. Number one, we're, we have to understand that the civil rights fight of today is not like the one in the days of Martin Luther King. There's a very different generation out there. And one of the things I find is they don't know their history. And so sometimes their level of appreciation for it. I mean, it was in my lifetime that a child, a child with a disability was guaranteed an education. And so some of us got some things and we didn't really know where they came from, but we thought we've always had them. And so it, we can become just, as was said, um, very complacent about some things. The other thing, and it's a word that Ira kept using, but it caught my attention. I honestly believe we're going to have to get a little bit more militant. I'm not talking about riots or, you know, burning people's property or something like that. But even in our attitude, we're going to have to be a little bit more, quote, unquote, angry. I mean, there was a day we were in convention and um, someone got killed, I think, at a metro station. And we left the morning session and went down by bus and protested. And I think it's going to take that kind of energy 
to move us and anybody who cares about blind people. I don't care what organization you belong to. I'd rather it be ACB. But if you're willing to fight the battle, I'm willing to go with you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think you have a point. We we are certainly facing a backlash from the general public over the last number of years. And some and there's some in in any area of um debate and discussion and understanding, there's some legitimacy to it, but there's also a large amount of um underlying uh willingness to impair our rights and we can't let that happen we can't we certainly need to understand the problems that others are facing but we can't do that in the spirit of okay we'll give we'll give in because we know we need to help um everyone around us we we have to stand up for ourselves because no one else is going to yep but a person asked me she said you know as a white person, I feel stomped upon. I was alive when we put in all of these programs, affirmative action, daycare, you know, college educations. We did all these things. And it's like nobody remembers and nobody knows. And I feel like a total failure because I feel like nothing we did worked and nothing we did mattered. So I don't know how many other people feel that way, but I get a sense of the fact that more people feel that way than we think. So how, what would your take be on that, everybody? All right, I'm going to jump in again first, and I'm, I'm going to disclaim that this is definitely coming from my LGBTQ perspective. It bothers me often when we hear or see, you know, this isn't blindness related. Um, and, you know, and I think that there is a a very concerted and very, uh, um, it's working. Uh, there's a better word for that, but I can't think of it. Um, you know, book bans and changing how history is taught. Uh, Pam touched on it before. Younger generations, they don't know the history. And, you know, I spent a lot of time learning the history of my community. So I would be, you know, first thankful for what everybody did so that I didn't have to feel afraid and, and ashamed every day. Um, but also to be able to advocate more effectively um, and they are, they, and, and it's just a loose day. I'm not pointing fingers at either party or anything like that, but there is a conservative movement to dumb us down. So we don't have the examples to draw back on. Um, and I do feel bad that I, I am Caucasian. I feel bad that members of my community feel like we're getting kicked in the pants. Like, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Well, my answer back to that is, was it enough? Look at where we are now. Was it enough? Part of the problem, I think, is that, you know, certain segments of society, and it's not just one political party or one group, but certain segments of society are trying to take advantage of that for their own political gain. And mm-hmm. all that does is create more angst among yep. the white community because they keep hearing it and they hear it. And they get more frustrated about it. Um, you, we know over time with the, the way this country is looking from a racial, ethnic, um, LGBT, all these perspectives that the, the amount of toleration, uh, among everyone should increase as time goes along. Mm-hmm. 
but we don't have time to get there if everybody is pushed into a corner by the by the forces that are really trying to uh, basically divide us. Yeah, provide us. That's right. Yeah, Ira, do you have anything to say about that? Well, they've said it better than I probably could say it. It's just this old song, a story, a saying rather. If you let somebody hit you upside your head, you deserve <laughs> to get hit upside your head. Tanya. Ira, I really had to say your story moved me. And I really had to say uh, you really inspired me with your story. And I was sitting here listening and I said, wow. I mean, I understand I know I'm an African-American to myself and I'm visually impaired. And I know I've been through a whole lot of racism and it was really ridiculous. Um, I, I really feel upset a lot about, you know, uh, just, you know, the situation with the voting. I mean, come on. I mean, I do have a right to vote, you know, I really do. I have a right to vote and I have a right for my voice to be heard. But, you know, I understand we living in a in a bad situation in this country and I know I can't really do much about it, but, you know, the only thing that I really need to do is keep lifting up my voice and make sure I, I have my voice being heard. And that is the whole part is doing a lot of voting. And that's what I'm going to do. So thank you. And hey, keep, you know, keep going on with your story because it's going to really inspire a lot of people, not just only just lots of people, me, the whole world. Thank you. Thank you, Tanya. That's an, an inspirational statement that you just made. So don't belittle yourself and sell yourself short. Ron has his hand raised. So this question is specifically for Ira. And, um, Ira, I just want to thank you for your story. Um, it was fascinating. Um, and I really appreciate you sharing so much. You spent a long time in um, the civil rights movement. And um, you obviously learned a lot and experienced a lot. If you think about, you know, I'm sitting in the blindness, you know, kind of low vision space um, with all of us. What, and you alluded to some of this, but what do you think is the most important thing the blindness movement can learn from your experience? What is the one piece of advice that you would give us? The one thing I heard you say was, you know, basically, we need to be more, um, you know, we need to be more militant and we, we, we should not accept things when they happen. But what kind of, you know, is that the piece of advice you would give us? Is there anything else you would give us as advice that we can use to become more effective? That's a good question, Ron. I don't know how exactly to answer that. I'm, I, I can't foresee the future. But what I do feel is that we need we, meaning us in the disabled community, but also aligned with other movements, we need to continue to build a cohesive, unified movement and militant. A lot of people don't like that word militant. I'm militant. Um, 
I, I just think that it's a continuum. Every time you accomplish something, we accomplish something, there's somebody trying to take it away. At least that's been my experience. I get frustrated by it, but I've learned to accept it and, and keep on. You know, we had a situation in Louisville. Uh, perhaps you all have read about it. A young African-American woman named, named Brianna Taylor was murdered by the police uh, here in the city. And we had demonstrations going on daily. Well, I, I did not go on those demonstrations. I just sometimes, I just feel very weak. I, I use a walker and I, I can't do it. But to the extent that I can, I do. And I call people and have them get involved in it. There's no specific response I can give you except to, to say injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I don't know who said that, but somebody said it. And that's what it is. If you, wherever you see something going wrong, just just do it. Um, one of, I think, Martin Luther King's pastors once said, if you see a good fight, get into it. He wasn't saying that you should start something, but just don't allow the status quo to prevail. You've got to do something. But you also have to weigh this against other factors. How do you keep your job and, and, and feed your family if you have a family and, and also do all these things? Well, the answer that I would have to that is we have to be a community. If somebody is, is being vamped upon, we have to come to his or her aid. It's as simple as that. Don't let nobody mess over you. I had a, an opportunity. I've, I've been to Europe a number of times. And I went to the first concentration camp that was ever built in Dachau. And what I saw was amazed me. But the thing that amazed me the most was not the fact that they built this camp. The Nazis were insisting that the prisoners keep their, their beds neat. They had them use hospital corners, if you know what those are, when you make your bed. And it, it's such an anomaly, it's such a contradiction to me. To see this happen that way, I don't know what else to, to, to tell you. We have to just keep on keeping on, and there will always be challenges for us. Things will change. This is not Tony, it's DJ on Tony's phone. First of all, Ira, thank you for sharing your story and for opening yourself up uh, as an open book. We are all the same, yet we're different. I look at the word community. What do I see in that word? What do you see in that word? I see we all come together under or for the cause of unity. Community. It's what makes us one in spite of our differences. Because like I said, we're all the same, yet we're different. And thankfully, I am thankful for the difference because if it were just the fact that we were all the same. You know what? And it may sound funny, but it's true. We would get sick and tired of seeing each other coming and going. We're all the same. And yet I thank God for the difference. The struggles we face 
the opportunities that are presented for us or the lack thereof. In that sense, and there's many more, it makes us all the same. The difference may be our way of thinking, maybe our way of handling things, whatever the case might be. Yet and still, the one thing that holds true is the fact that we all face struggles. When Ira asked the question, there is ACB and there is NFB, why are there two? Well, that's another story for another time, but I will leave you with this thought. When we make the choice, see, at one time I was of that militant state. I was, uh, I came up under the Stokely Carmichael, uh, Adam Clayton Powell era, and all of that with the red, black, and green, the liberation movement, the whole nine yards. Now, the question is, where are we now as opposed to the unity, community? That's my take. I thank you for allowing me to share. DJ, you bring up some awesome questions. I think we may need to hear more from you in the future. Okay, I'm going to do something that I think Kenneth will appreciate. As you know, Kenneth, there are fewer and fewer of us that have worked with Derwood McDaniel in the organization. Um, Ira, give us some of your impressions of working with Derwood and, and what kind of a person he was. You know, we, we hear a lot about him at every convention. Um, from Kenneth's committee and all that, but you you have you were up close and personal with with this uh, great man. Tell us a little bit about him. I did not know him intimately, but I I knew him through the case that we that, that, that I fought, and he was not like me. He was uh, very polite and erudite, and I'm not afraid to talk about people's moms if I have to. Um, and that's not a criticism or a compliment. It's a fact people react in different ways. Durwood was a very, very um, distinguished kind of a fellow. And I think under other circumstances, he might have been upset with me because of my potty mouth and various other things that I that I do. But he knew what had to be done. He knew. And that's what I respected most about him. It was it was through him that I learned certain values that, that I that I try to retain today. How well I do it, I, I don't know. And one is to not lose your, your head and get so angry that you flail out and you don't know what the hell you're doing. So I I respected that. He knew how to run a show. He knew how to how to run the organization. And that by the way is also very important. It's not simply that we have to be angry at things. We have to know what the hell we're doing. He he knew what he was doing, but he didn't just work alone. He worked with the board, and that was, was great. More than that, um, I don't know, but if I can take a point of personal privilege, if you don't mind, I am very honored to have been invited to speak here. I mean that very sincerely, I think you, Debbie, for extending the invitation. And I would love to communicate with you all. Debbie has my contact information, my phone number, as well as my email. 
And if you could get that to everybody, Debbie, I would appreciate that because I would like to hear more from people. And you had some questions you asked me, and I, I may not have given you a full enough answer. I want to think more about it. But if you don't mind, Debbie, just send them my, my contact information. I'll do that. And I've already told Ira before even this wonderful event today that this would not be the last time we would be asking him and picking his brain and all of that. So I will definitely get out his contact information. I just want to tell a real quick story about Durwood. By the time I came in to ACB, Durwood was getting older. And he, you know, a lot of new leaders and new powerful people were coming into play, but Derwood was still respected and cared about. And when I came into ACB, it was before IDEA came into being, and our states were still fighting for braille bills. That sounds like a strange word today, but it wasn't back in the day. And Maryland was giving everybody a hard time, and I decided this was not going to stand. But what I want, how this has anything to do with Durwood, one day my phone rang and it was, it was Durwood McDaniel. I was from a little state. I was really nothing in ACB. I kind of made a nuisance of myself because I was always calling the ACB office and the California Council of the Blind office and asking for help and documents. And how did they do this? And how did they do that? And it was a different and everybody was so kind to me. But here is Derwood McDaniel. And he said he told me who he was and he was so kind and he he was so uplifting. And here I was somebody with really no history in the organization from a state that at that time wasn't very active. And Pam and I made some differences there in the early days. And other people, <laughs> thank God, have, have picked up the torch. And now, you know, but the fact and he didn't just talk to me for five minutes. He wanted to know all about me, what my interests were, what I wanted to do in ACB. And I asked him questions. I bet we were on the phone 45 minutes. And I guess what I what that said to me was he saw something in me and took the time, a basic nobody in ACB, and talked to me. And what I know is I'm not the only person to whom that happened. And I think we have to care about each other as individuals, and we all can't care about everyone as an individual, but if some of us take people that have promise or whatever and spend some time with them one-on-one, -on -one, that is so important. And to me, as, as Durwood aged and the Durwood that I saw and knew, that was his greatest gift to me, that he cared about me as an individual. He cared about what I thought. He listened to me. And so I think maybe some of us could could take a lesson, a page from that book. Yes, Derwood was a consummate organization builder. And the one thing he knew was that it, it takes intimate, one-on-one -on -one contact and, and mentoring and, and listening, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to build an organization. And that was one of his one of his many strengths. Absolutely, mm -hmm. Debbie. Peggy, Ira, <laughs> this is Peggy Garrett. I don't know if you remember me. I do remember you very well. Yes, it was 2008 when you participated on one of our panels for the Multicultural Affairs Committee. Uh, you were brought to us by our very dear friend who's no longer with us, Eric Fry. 
And that is one of the sessions that always stands out in my mind. So it's really great to hear your voice again uh, and know that you're still in the fight with us. Um, I met you and your husband, didn't I? Yes, you did, Michael. And he's right here in the room with me. So we're, Hi, Michael. <laughs> he's, he's over there on his computer as well. But our, the question that I wanted to ask is, it's been 15 years, and I know you're still very active and advocating for many different things. But I just wanted to ask if there is any successes, anything that you've really been working on that you feel progress has been made. Um, any anything you like to share with us, just as kind of encouragement, because sometimes it seems like we're going backwards instead of moving forward. It seems like we make one step forward and two steps back. So, just curious to see kind of what you've been up to and and what successes you you feel you've you've uh, experienced. Well, thank you for the question, but also I want to say to everybody that Peggy is is a terrific woman, her husband too. I, I really was very honored to have been in touch with them for, for this long. Um, and when I say that, I, I mean it. Nobody's ever accused me of being a diplomat. I can show you references to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, things that I'm working on, first of all, my health is, is not very good. So I can't get out like I used to. My kids... I have fights with my kids all the time. I, I, I love to travel. And they won't let me go anywhere. And, and yeah, that's, a, that's another s- story. Well, my lesson, and maybe I mentioned it when we talked, you never get anything without fighting for it. And you never get to keep anything unless you continue to fight for it. Because every time you win something, someone's going to try to take it away from you. That sounds very cruel. But, uh, but so very true. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about original sin. I'm just talking about the way the human condition operates. The work that you and your husband have done is, is monumental. I was just so honored. Whatever little bit I, I had to play in that, when we worked together, was, was, was great for me. But if I may say a general thing, what I get from this meeting today, in addition to having gotten to meet you wonderful people, and I know Pam is going to, I mean, uh, Debbie is going to send everybody my contact information, and I would love for you to, to call me or, or email me, better than call me, but either way, it, is that we are a community. We are a community within a community, and there are so many contradictions and so many uh, mitigating factors, if, if you will. I don't know the best way to approach it. All I know is that if you don't keep fighting, somebody's going to be stepping all over you. Mm-hmm. There ain't no retiring from the human race. Either you live or you die. And, and and if you can make a difference, and if you meet people who make a difference, I have had the honor to have met a lot of people who made a difference. And I don't care whether I had a third grade education or a PhD, what they've done. And I know people with third grade educations, by the way, who know a lot more than PhDs. And yeah, the long and short for me is that I am so honored that you all would have me on this show. I hope I, I made a little bit of, of, a, of a contribution. I, I want to I tell you, Ira, you <laughs> belong in the pantheon 
of the of the history of blind people. There's a woman, I'm gonna connect you with her, I think. There's a woman who I have met uh lives in Colorado called the Blind History Lady. Yes. And this woman is devoted to putting together histories of people who are blind or who have low vision. And she goes back to people that were born even in the 1800s, let alone our, uh, the prior century. And uh, you really belong, you know, high amongst those of us um, in the struggle for what you have done. And, you know, your story is really inspirational. Our so, so, earlier, you spoke about a circle of trust. Can you just uh, elaborate a little bit on that and how we can ensure that we uh, build that uh type of thing that in our work that we do? Very good question. The, uh, the expression that we used was, we are a band of brothers in a circle of trust. And then later we changed it because that was sexist. We're a band of brothers and sisters in a circle of trust. And we have to trust and support one another. And we're not taught that in this society. What we're taught is, I got mine, and now you get yours. And, and, and that's just not the way to function. The, the, the whole way the economic system runs is, is questionable to me. Why there's so many poor people and, and a few people run it, that has not changed. Maybe the, 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 the chairs on the Titanic have changed, but it's still on the deck. Beyond that, I don't, I don't know how better to answer you. This is Jane. I wanted to ask if, if there's time, if Ira has any advice for those of us who are totally blind and need to use a cane or a guide dog or human guide in terms of being part of demonstrations. I've always wanted to do that, and I've let my fear of not being able to track what's going on stop me. Thank you. I would say never go to a demonstration by yourself. Always have one or two people there who can help you. Preferably also somebody with a car. But if you can't do that, <laughs> that that's the only advice. I don't I don't have any more advice beyond that. I'm very honored that Debbie would ask me to speak here. But I've got, I'm using up my, my advice. Well, I, Ira, we are, we are so thrilled that you spoke here. And, you know, um, I'm a lit major, which you were going to be back in the day. And you, you mentioned a line from Shakespeare. And I want to close with a little portion. At the end of Romeo and Juliet, which is all about mindless hate, right? And the prince speaks to the Montagues and the Capulets after the bodies of Romeo and Juliet have been found. And he says, God has chosen to kill your hate with love. And I, for blinking at your discord, have lost a brace of kinsmen. All are punished. And if we could remember, and sometimes when hatred is reigning supreme, it is very difficult to remember. But if we could remember 
that light always overcomes darkness and love always overcomes hate. But to be a light in the darkness or to show love in hatred or to do any of these things that Ira has done and that many of us has done, there's a risk. And you've got to be willing to take the risk and go for it. Why? Because it's the right thing to do and because somebody has to. And Ira, you are one of those persons who did that. You were one of those persons who said somebody has to. And you turned that somebody into me. And there are far too many of us that say somebody has to. And we don't make that transition in turning that somebody is me. And so I am very moved by what you said. And I've known you a long time and have had dinner at your house and have heard you talk. And I am I am just very moved by what happened today. And all of us are. And we thank you so very much. And I also want to say for sharing a vulnerability that showed me what you're made of. When you told us that story that wasn't overly flattering, when you turned down the invitation of the LGBTQ community and you are sorry for that and you regret that and you used it to help us and to teach us a lesson. And it's much easier to make yourself look good. And I just want to tell you that that admission raised you so much higher in my own mind and eyes, and I'm sure everybody else's too. And um, we're going to have a series of these programs starting in the fall. And um, I will be seeking input from not only our team, but all of Debbie, you. Debbie, I'm going to jump in. Love you, love you, love you. Debbie <laughs> and Jeff, thank you so much for moderating your portions. Ira, <laughs> you're a gem and a gift to us all. Come back next week when Tim and Cheryl Cummings will be presenting another great Sunday edition. The following week, Ron and Lisa Brooks. And then I'll be back with Kenneth and all of our um, JP Morgan and uh, DKM winners. So have a great Sunday, everyone. You've been listening to Sunday Edition on ACB Media. Stream one. That's American Council of the Blind Media or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Episodes drop every week at 1 p.m. on Sundays. And you can email us at Sunday Edition AC, all one word, Sunday Edition with the letters AC at gmail.com. Let's brunch again together next Sunday.